Hey guys, this is Naeem and you've reached the Mosaic Church Podcast. So excited that you're part of our listening community and I'd love for you to be even more connected. So check out our website. There's more content there and there's more opportunities for you to get connected in our ministries and events as well. Also, love for you to share this content. If this is blessed to you, I know that God wants to use you to bless other people with it. So share this podcast, if you will. Lastly, would you consider supporting this ministry? This is made possible by other people's generosity, and I'd love for you to pay it forward. Join us to reclaim the message and the movement of Jesus together. So would you consider giving to this ministry? I know that God is able to do immeasurably more through us when we come together. Thank you so much. God bless you and enjoy. Hey, good morning, Mosaic. I am so happy to be back. I wish we were closer because I'd, I'd love to be here on so many Sundays. I feel like family, of course, Naeem, Ashley, Kristen, my colleague of 30 years. Allison, stand up over here. I don't know if you can swing the camera, but welcome Allison over here. Now, this has nothing to do with the message of the morning, but it has everything to do with the message of this church. You know, one of uh, the most uh, significant passages of scripture for me is when Abram had been called, Genesis 12, to leave everything, his family, his uh, his money, source of income, culture, the land in which he was raised. And, and he says, where do you want me to go? God says, I'll show you when you get there. And, and he journeys out and the whole thing. And to make a long story short, eventually he and his, uh, his nephew Lot, their tribes grew to, they, nobody could share the land, right? Uh, it was too big. And so Abram magnanimously said to his nephew, hey, you take the better part of the land, you, whatever land you want, you go east, I'll go west, etc." Well, of course, Lot took the best part of the land. And Abram has trusted God. From the very beginning, not knowing where he's going, just following an obedience, faith, courage, sacrifice. And he gets out there and he's in a desert. There's nothing. There's no water. There's no trees. There's nothing. And he has a breakdown, a meltdown. And God has to take him on a little walk. Like, what are you doing? I'm out here. Like, I've got like a chicken with a, you know, that's going to get its head cut off. I've trusted you. I've followed you. Everything. He gets out there. God takes him on a walk. And, and, and he goes up on a hill and God says, look to the north, to the south to the east, to the west, how far can you see? Because as far as you can see, that's what I'm going to give to you. And I want to ask you that question. Again, it has nothing to do with this message of this moment. It has everything to do with the message of your church. Your church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. I don't know if you know that. What is an embassy, right? You, you go to some uh, international country, right? And America has an embassy. I don't know. Let's say it's in Paris. I don't know where it is in France. But let's say you go to Paris, there's an embassy. When you set foot on that land, you are technically, and, uh, and by international law, legally on an embassy soil. You're on embassy, you're on American soil. Even though you're in Paris, you're on American soil. You set foot onto that embassy compound, you're actually technically legally in America, right? And who's in that embassy? Ambassadors. Ambassador is there, and the staff, the state staff. And think about it, the ambassador and all the staff of the State Department, they don't get to say what they want to say. They speak on behalf, at this moment, of Joe Biden and the American government. So you don't get to talk about, they, they say, what do you think about this? You don't get to say what you think. you got to speak on behalf of, again, at this moment, Joe Biden and the American government, right? Think about that. That's what Paul talks about. We are ambassadors of Christ. And ambassadors occupy an embassy. And I'm telling you, this church is one of the very few, relative to 330,000 churches in America, very few places 
where you can set foot into this building, into the space, into the uniqueness, the beauty, the diversity, the united hearts, mind, soul of people of God representing well Jesus in that kingdom. Revelation 7, 9, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And we don't speak here on behalf of Naeem. We don't get to say what we want to say. We represent Jesus. You represent Jesus. So in all the issues of our time, all that, we speak on behalf of Jesus. We look, we feel, this is sacred soil. And I don't mean that like metaphorically. It's true. This is an embassy. And I say all that to say, how far, Mosaic, can you see? Because I don't think you even realize what you have. And I don't think you've even peaked as far as you're going as a church. How far can you see? You know, one of the things I realized coming in here, there's a couple of churches around here, right over here, right? <laughs> you know? and, uh, and, and there's one over here, but I understand that, uh, that, that there's a, uh, the idea is to buy more space. See, you need more space. I'm telling you, you don't realize what's coming. Because now that the pandemic is over, people no longer want to go to churches filled with people just like them. I'm talking about the younger you go. Now, there's always going to be siloed spaces, but you don't realize what you have. And I want to encourage you, this is the first year in three where there's no if attached to anything we've said. Think about that. First year in three that there's no if. And almost like the Bible, there's the Old Testament, the intertestamental period, New Testament. That's where we've been post-COVID or pre-COVID, right? The intertestament period of COVID. And now we're in like Matthew 1 or 2. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> we're in the brand new beginning of a whole future. You don't realize, I want you to, you probably do, but I, if you don't, you need to realize this is an embassy of God filled with ambassadors who don't just speak, but who look like the kingdom of God, the very heart of Jesus, and you don't realize what's coming. So I want to encourage you, like dream big. How far can you see? And part of how far you can see does involve uh, more space, more opportunity to fill this place where people are looking to worship with others, people are looking to come to Jesus, and you have that here. So I want to encourage you, whatever it takes, this is the moment to step on the gas. I'm telling you this, not even say talk about all this. I just feeling it, so I'm saying it has nothing to do with this message, but the <laughs> macro message of the morning. Think about it. There's five positions when you drive a car, right? So you think about your foot. You can be in the middle, kind of cruise control, holding it steady, right? You can give it a little gas. You can ease off a bit. You can put the brakes on, or you can floor it. And I want to go to the first slide. First Chronicles 12:32. The Bible tells us that the men of Issachar, it's a tribe of Israel fighting with David, the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what was right for Israel to do. Now, there's at least three things going on in that verse. First of all, somebody was thinking, right? To understand, you've got to be thinking. Someone was thinking about what? Their moment. The fact that they're thinking about their times means there's times past, there's times future, but this is a window and an opportunity, this moment, the times. And it says that reflecting with thought on the moment that they were in, they recognized what was the best course of action to take. It doesn't mean right or wrong, like sin, good, evil. It meant thoughtful about the moment. They recognized the significance of the moment, and they knew what was right for Israel to do. They knew what was the best course of action in that moment for Israel to do. And all I'm saying, that's kind of how we are too in this moment, which we'll get to the message. But think about it. Right now as a church, this is a moment to floor it. You can't always floor things, right? I mean, you go crazy. If you always got the pedal to the metal, you'd crash, right? You got to know how to drive the car. This moment, January, February, March, coming up on Easter, right now in this first year going forward into post-pandemic world with the special uniqueness of the message, the unique value proposition you have, 
You need to understand, and our church is the same way, Eden and Allison, we're flooring it right now. That means we're going into the unknown, stepping on the gas, taking faith risks. By the way, there's a fine line between faith and foolishness. We all know that, right? But this is a moment to floor it in every way in this church, from staffing, from your involvement, from leadership, and yes, more property, more building, so you can handle what's coming. I want you to know that. It's a moment to floor it, to not be fearful, but to be faithful, to see how far can you see. And I'm telling you, I see, I see what is ahead, and it's way more than you see, perhaps. And I want to encourage you to step on the gas. Get it done through volunteers, staffing, and, and again, yes, property, finance, everything. It's a moment to floor it, and eventually you'll back it off a little bit, right? But this is a moment, because we've been like this and a little bit like this for three years. You see what I'm saying? But the special uniqueness of this church, it's a moment to floor it. I promise you, do it by faith and obedience, because you have no idea what God is going to do in the future through this beautiful picture called Mosaic. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So the men of his car. Understand the times and know what is right to do. So they knew, they thought about the moment, understood the times, knew what was right, the best course of action to take in the moment. Now, back in December, I had the opportunity to go to a gathering put on by Barna. It's kind of like the Christian Gallup, if you will. And they've been around for a lot of years. So I want you to take a look at some recent research conducted by Barna that is ultimately the research behind what is known as the He Gets Us campaign. Have any of you seen the He Gets Us commercials? Any of you seen all that? Okay, do we have a slide for this? I guess it's right behind me, not on the confidence monitor, so I got to turn. Um, between April and July 2021, Barna conducted um, research on U.S. adults in this country. It extrapolates to 255 million people in the United States, and again, you can see the research behind me, and they categorized folks into four categories. So first, there were 14% of U.S. adults are non-Christians, want anything to do with Christianity, maybe atheist, agnostic, other religions, what have you. 14%. On the other side, you have 32% who are engaged Christians. That's people, nobody's perfect as a Christian, right? But these are people trying to get it done, live for Jesus every day, moving forward, whatever. But look at the middle, 54%, they categorize as spiritually open skeptics and Jesus followers. That totals 135 million U.S. adults in this country. Now, spiritually open skeptics is exactly what it says. I don't quite like the term Jesus followers, uh, I understand how they're using it. What they mean, these are kind of like casual Christians. It might be Christians uh, uh, who grew up in a Christian home, right? Um, they maybe went to a Christian school. They've had exposure. So you might think lukewarm or casual, right? Uh, these might be Southern Christians. You know, everywhere in the world, cultural <laughs> Christians, right? You know, everywhere in the world you go, right, uh, you lead people to Jesus by talking to them about Jesus, everything, helping them, to, hey, you need to become a Christian. The way you evangelize in the South is helping people understand they're not already Christians, and therefore you got to become a Christian, right? So, so, but that's kind of the Jesus follower category. Now, check it out. That's 50, what, 54% of the U.S. population right now is in this category. And with all this research, keep that slide up for a moment if you would, 86% then, because of the bottom three categories, really the top three, 86% of U.S. adults, 219 million people in this moment, think about the times, understand the times, right? They are somewhat to completely certain that a man named Jesus walked this planet 2,000 years ago. 86% of U.S. adults already believe there's a guy, there was a man named Jesus, and he lived 2,000 years ago. Likewise, 86%, that percentage there of U.S. adults, they have a favorable view of Jesus. 
Now, I don't know what you read in the papers and what we hear, but I would never have known that. This is research, by the way, $650 million worth of research behind, uh, behind the He Gets Us campaign to date. By the end of this year, it'll, over a billion dollars will have been spent on research and development and the whole thing about the He Gets Us campaign, uh, which is ultimately to raise the respect and relevance of Jesus across this country and encourage Christians calling them up to better represent Jesus in their life, work, and play. Now, all of that's to say, 86%, we ought to go, wow, that's amazing, you ought to be 86% U.S. adults, Jesus lived, and they have a favorable view of Jesus. Among things, take a look at this slide, right? They find him uh, inclusive. 86% of U.S. adults believe that Jesus was inclusive. Not only he lived, he was inclusive, right? That he was positive, his teachings are positive. Like, if you incorporate his teachings in your life, it's good for you, it's good for society. 86% of U.S. adults believe that Jesus lived an exemplary life. Like if you model your life after Jesus, it's good for you, it's good for society. These are just some of the key insights from this research. So where's the clapping? I mean, great, 86%, right? Hey, check this out. Look at this next slide. Only 11% of U.S. adults have a favorable view of Christians and therefore the church. 86% of U.S. adults have a favorable view of Jesus. Only 11% have a favorable view of Christians and or the church. Do you know what other institution in American life has an 11% favorability rating? U.S. Congress. If you say church in America today, you just said Congress. Think about if I got up here, I want to talk about Congress today. Think about what that would feel like. <laughs> and we came in here, I want to talk about U.S. government, U.S. Congress. Oh, man, you know, like, that's, you say church in this society today. Men of Isaacar, understand the moment, know what is right to do. You say church today, that's what it feels like. To 89% of U.S. adults, 11% have a favorable, only 11% a favorable view of the church. Why is that? Take a look at this slide. People have a deep-seated instinct to not want to hear from Christians. In other words, they don't trust our opinions. Here's another finding. They reject the hypocrisy, the judgmentalism, and the discrimination that's often connected to Christians and or the church. By the way, I didn't say this earlier, but the entire He Gets Us campaign is answering a question, why is the greatest love story in the history of the world been turned into a message of hate? How did the greatest love story in the history of the world become associated with hate? You're seeing some of the findings, right? Uh, not only that, but uh, U.S. adults today are not moved by statements that defend, next slide, or promote Christianity. Soak that in for a second. The vast majority, 89% of U.S. adults are not today moved by statements that defend or promote Christianity These are not effective in this moment. You understand what I'm saying? They might have been effective in the past. They may be effective in the future, but in this moment, they're not effective. And not only that, but 89% of U.S. adults struggle with or outright reject the divinity of Jesus and the possibility of having a personal relationship with him. 89%. They can't process it. They don't trust it. They can't handle it. You see what I'm saying? That's the moment we're living in. A quick aside, by the way, I often talk about the 21st century as the Matthew 5, 16th century. So in other words, in the 20th century, how did people come to know Jesus? We used words. We explained things. 
Uh, we brought Billy Graham to our cities, and he clearly explained the good news of Jesus Christ, life, death, burial, resurrection for our sins. People got saved. Uh, we gave people books like More Than a Carpenter, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, written by a former agnostic who set out Josh McDowell to investigate the claims of Christ to disprove it once and for all and found out that they're all true when he came to Christ. And we gave them books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, More Than a Carpenter, later Lee Strobel. We made the case for Christ with explanation and with words and argument. I don't mean fighting argument, I mean argument. And uh, people came to Christ, right? Um, we went to Myrtle Beach. I did this. Went to Myrtle Beach, Campus Crusade. You tap people on the shoulders, enjoying the sun, surf, whatever, their kids, family. Hey, excuse me, do you know if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven? Oh, you don't? Can I share with you the four spiritual laws? You know, <laughs> flip through a little book. Oh, you like to? Oh, sure, I'll receive Christ. That's how it was done in the 20th century. This is a Matthew 5, 16 century. Jesus in that passage didn't say, let them hear your good words. He said, let them see your good works, right? It's a demonstrative symbol. We have to lead with demonstration, not explanation. And by the way, back to a pivot about the beautiful thing that's going on here. This is the chief work of the 21st century is bringing diverse people, willing themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one, as foreknown would happen by Jesus. This is exactly what Ephesians 2.10 means. For we are his workmanship. Jew and Gentile, rich, poor, men and women, we, and then he means, I'm just being clear, he means the multi-ethnic church is the workmanship of God, right? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, the church, not Mark Demas, the church, this church created in Christ Jesus to do good works, works that he foresaw before the foundation of the world. This is the work. This is the primary work from which all the other works flow. And that's why I said you've got a special embassy here. So with all that in mind, uh, these are some of the challenges that we face in this moment. They struggle with or outright reject the divinity of Jesus, possibility of having a personal relationship with him. We are leading with words, not with works. And by the way, 77% of churches today uh, in America, 77% of evangelical and 89% of mainline churches fail to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. 77% of evangelicals, 89% of mainline, fail to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. And with all of the data and the research with Barna, it's no wonder people don't trust us. Because we say God loves all people, but in fact, most churches look like God loves this group of people. Like everybody's got their own gods. You understand what I'm saying? And that's the way it was two or 3,000 years ago. The Hittites had gods, the Egyptians had gods, the Phoenicians had gods, the Jews. That's the way it's looking. The systemically segregated church in America presents an image as if we all have our own God. It's confusing. It's not worth believing. It's, and that's why, you see, that's the mess we're in in terms of advancing the gospel in the 21st versus the 20th century that we're in. So with all that in mind, take a look at this next slide. Uh, Barna came up. Um, uh, oh, wait, I think we want to go. Uh, there's a slide with a graphic on it, right? Can you forward to it? Uh, we there? There we go. Okay, so all of this research Barna put together in what they call the faith journey map. And you can see there's two bridges, the faith journey, spiritually open. Look at the, that's the box, the 54%, the spiritually open, right? The Jesus followers, they're in this middle. In a sense, that's the target audience. The 14%, they're, they're not interested. The 30% or so, it's the engaged Christians. But we're in this window of time for 54% of people with an 86% favorability rating of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? We're in a moment where this is an open door. 
And that moment won't last forever, by the way. I'm old enough to remember when the, the uh, uh, I'd say the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall, all that fell, and Russia and all these countries opened their arms. Please come in. Entrepreneurship, capitalism, Christianity, and Christians flooded in, and that window lasted about three years, and then it went boom. We're in that window right now to these 54%. We're in that post-pandemic world, first time in three years without an if. That's the target audience. But here's the problem, a couple problems. Number one, we continue to try to meet people at the bridge of Christ's divinity when no one's listening. Do you understand what I'm saying? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus, how God sent his son to die for you, and the, the truth claims, the divinity claims. Do you understand what I'm saying? The research shows in this moment they're not working. Does that mean we don't believe them? Of course we believe them, right? We believe. Is that the end goal? Yes, we want to see as many people come to know Jesus as we do. But if you lead in the 21st century in this moment with words, and if you lead with the divinity claims of Jesus, no one's listening. That's the 11%. Turn, you see what I'm saying? 89%, I should say. So what the He Gets Us campaign is all about is helping us to understand, based on empirical data, on a survey of 255 million U.S. adults, is where we need to be in this moment, individually and collectively as churches, is meeting people at the bridge of his humanity. Remember, Jesus was kind. He was inclusive. His life is exemplary. It's good for you to live like Jesus, to, to follow him. All those things about him. he was compassionate. He was merciful. He fed and helped the poor. You see what I'm saying? Those, put all those in your brain, that's the characteristics of Jesus in his humanity. In the divinity, he's omniscient, right? He knows everything. <laughs> he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. These are all the divinity characteristics. We, in, in theology, they call them the attributes of God. So typically, we say, what are the attributes of God? Well, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. There's all these spirits. But what about the attributes of Christ in his humanity? That's the moment we're in to focus on. He was kind, he was inclusive, his life is exemplary, etc. compassionate, merciful. And when you watch the commercials, that's what you see, isn't it? Jesus, he gets us. You know, he knows what it's like to be born to a single mom, if you will. I mean, they were married, of course, but you see, I'm born out of wedlock or, or pregnant, I should say, prior to marriage. So he understands that. He knows what it's like to sit at a table and your family doesn't get you at Thanksgiving when you're trying to, you see what I'm saying? He knows what that's like because he's talking about God and the coming kingdom of God and his own family's rejecting. He gets us. Do you understand what I'm saying? So all of this is at the bridge of his humanity and that's what the research shows, what the campaign is encouraging us and what we should understand in this moment, how to engage culture for the sake of Christ is not with words at the bridge of his divinity, but with works at the bridge of his humanity. And of course, that gives us a shot with those 54%, you see, that then engaging them through relationship, the humanity of Christ, living an exemplary life yourself, then that can help move, hopefully as many as possible. We know it won't be 100%, but we have a better shot of moving people up the faith journey by beginning at the bridge of humanity, not the bridge of his divinity. Y'all with me? You understand what I'm saying? Now, I told you there's two problems. That's the first. Here's the second. And, and I've talked to Barna and Glue and the people behind all this. There's actually a third bridge because all of this really relates to the individual, how we live and how we conduct ourselves at work and play. You want to speak to people at the bridge of his humanity, meet them at common ground. You see what I'm saying? But there's actually a third bridge. You know what that bridge is? It's a collective. It's called the church. And you know what the problem is right now? Take a look at these slides. We'll go back to it, right? The problem is this. Christians do not often speak, act, or look like Jesus. Number two, churches do not well represent what is otherwise believed about Jesus. 86% 
of U.S. adult population have a favorable view of Jesus, but it's not translating when they look at the churches because the churches do not well represent that kindness, that inclusivity, that empathy. You see what I'm saying? They don't represent that collectively in this country. I already gave you stats about that along the lines of systemic segregation. And not only that, Christians often think more of their personal interests than they do of the interests of others. And we have a problem because this is the view of 89% of U.S. adults in this country. And I said there's a third bridge, and the bridge is the collective, the church. And, and, and you put all that aside, here is the problem. The church, churches in this country, the vast majority, do not look like those commercials. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because people, individuals, are going to see those commercials and maybe get attached to the spiritually open skeptic, the Jesus follower, and they're, they're going to, okay, well, maybe, you see what I'm saying? They're going to engage a little bit. They're, they're going to hear. They're going to find people like you and me at the bridge of his humanity. They'll want to take a step. And then where are they going to go? They're going to come to a church on Sunday morning. And I already told you, just on this one slice, 77% of evangelical, 89% of mainline are systemically segregated by color, class, and culture, and the churches, the vast majority of churches in this country do not well reflect those commercials. And if I'm an individual and I watch the Super Bowl, saw the commercial, gave a little bit of heart, I'm in the 54%, I took a chance and I went to a church, that church doesn't look like the commercial, and that's it, I'm done. That's the window we're in. It might last two years. It might last three. We have a moment. And that's why your church is so uniquely positioned and you know, it's not Naeem, Chris, the people, Ashley, they didn't start this church. Oh, we're gonna. They were so far ahead of this understanding. Do you see what I'm saying? They didn't do it because it's popular. It's not some gimmick to grow your church. Like, oh, let's have a bunch of diverse people. It's not a response to Black Lives Matter or, or the tragedy of George Floyd and so many others we could name, the murder of George Floyd. This isn't a response or a reaction, I should say. This was a response to the scripture. This was a response 17 years ago, or in my case, 22 years ago. It was looking at the word of God and realizing God loves all people, not just some, hope for all. And the church should express that faith, that peace, that hope and love in tangible ways, in works, workmanship, Jew and Gentile, men and women, rich and poor, politics, all the divides of this world, rather than try to make you feel comfortable and go to a church where everybody thinks like you, looks like you, acts like you, that, that club, if you will, right? Members only club? No, how you get comfortable in the 21st century is you get comfortable with the tension in this room. I bet there's Republicans here. I bet there's Democrats here. I bet there's all, all kinds of different thoughts, right? Oh, and they separate you here. Republicans are, yeah, you know? But see, but all of that, it doesn't go away. Those things are important. Man, outside these doors, fight, argue, debate. You, you, that's a right as an American citizen to engage in politics. But what you do by going, by walking, working, worshiping God together as one, you don't doubt one another's motivations. You see what I'm saying? So even, I'm just using politics for instance. So let's say you're a Democrat. And by the way, these are politicians in our church, so I take it from them, right? It, it might be a Democrat arguing this. It might be a Republican arguing this. But when you walk, work, worship God together as one, you know the motivation is right because Christ is lifted up and draws all people into himself. So the way this Democrat, who's a Christ follower in a multi-ethnic church, wants to advance the kingdom of God, they, they, they differ on the methods. But what's behind that is the same motivation. I want to well represent Christ. I want to impact the world around me for the common good. That's the beauty of what you've got. Here's how Christ died, by the way. Right? Republicans and Democrats, blacks and whites, rich and poor, on and on we could talk, right? 
he holds us all in tension. And the unity is in the tension. The unity isn't get rid of the tension. That's the 20th century. It's the way so many churches continue to play it today. Just make you comfortable. Give you the message you want. Tell you what you want to hear. Give you the color of carpet. You see what I'm saying? And, but what that's like is this. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like Jesus letting go of one side. Yeah, I'm all about the Democrats. Forget those Republicans. I'm all about the blacks. Forget those whites. You see what I'm saying? No, this is Jesus holding us all in tension. I'm lifted up, draw all people. And I said, man, the unity is in the tension. And I'm not talking about fighting tension. I'm talking the tension that binds us as one. That's what you've got here. You don't realize, how far can you see? You haven't even started, if you will. You're only getting started, I should say. And there's so much more when you understand the things we're talking about the moment we're living in. So with all of this in mind then, uh, just continuing uh, through this, and I want to get to our, our main passage for this morning, to be a church that reflects those commercials, we're going to have to reject exclusivity in favor of inclusivity. We're going to have to reject fear in favor of faith. We're going to have to reject and put aside the benign comforts to chase bold new challenges and personal desires so to see the needs of others as more important than our own. That's how you avoid becoming uh, an exclusive club for members just like you. And that mindset is disruptive. It flies in the face of conventional wisdom. It's not likely to be well understood or well received, even by folks in your families, right? Uh, those who know and love you, they're not going to get it. The reason is because this mindset, this understanding is not natural. It's supernatural. Because when you gave your life to Christ, birds of a feather flock together, right? I mean, somebody said that in ancient history, and it's true, right? But that's in the natural man. I thought when I signed up for this Christian thing, it was about living in the supernatural, going above and beyond what is otherwise my own appetites, my own comfort zone, the things that I want. I thought it was about stepping out into the brave unknown with fear in obedience to Christ. So this is how we avoid that. And there's no better passage, or I should say, of instruction of how to than perhaps Philippians chapter 2. Paul is the author. He writes, obviously, so much of the New Testament. You should understand, if you're reading Philippians, Corinthians, Ephesians, whatever book you're reading, if it was written by Paul, it has one macro message. And the message is this, the unity of the church. And if I could say it like this, the unity of the diverse kingdom of God. The unity of the church, men and women, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, the unity of the church for the sake of advancing a credible gospel the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. This is Paul's life's message. This is his writing message at a macro level. It's what he lived and died for, to do the work of God, see diverse men and women will themselves, to walk, work, worship God together as one, to advance a credible witness of God's love for all people, not just some, on earth as it is in heaven. So when you come to the book of Philippians then, um, you read the first chapter and he kind of gets going and he's praying for people. He's going to tell them a little bit about the situation. We're going to Philippians 2. Uh, and, I, and I won't take too long on this, but this is the example we're to have. So in Philippians 1.27, he tells this church, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Well, we get some insight because you flip back to Ephesians chapter 4. He says the same thing to the church at Ephesus. Walk worthy of your calling. And he's speaking not to Mark Damas. He's speaking to the church, right? This, this beautiful, diverse church uh, in that time. And he says, y'all in the South, y'all, 
Not you, Mark Damas, y'all walk worthy of your calling. He says it in Ephesians 120, or Philippians 127, Ephesians chapter 4. And again, you ask the question, what is that calling? To be one in the church for the sake of advancing a credible gospel. So this is where he's going. It's kind of how he sets up Philippians chapter 1. So we have to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel, being one in the church for the, for the sake of advancing that credible gospel. So when he gets to Philippians chapter 2 then, he says, therefore... And, and, and therefore, in light of this calling to be one in the church for the sake of the gospel. Now, in English Bibles, it reads, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort of his love, any common sharing, uh, all the language in, in verses 1 and 2, it's not uh, if you have these things. In the Greek, really, it's for as much as these things you have. For as much as you have found encouragement from being united in Christ. Again, across the distinctions of this world that otherwise divide, since you're finding encouragement in that, since you have koinonia, that's the word used, this common fellowship, since this is true for you now, this common fellowship surrounded by the Christ who holds us all together, since you have found tenderness and compassion, you know what that really means in Greek? It means mercy in your belly. Since you have this in the beauty of the diversity and the unity of this church, since mercy is in your bowels, that's the literal Greek word. We say heart, they said bowels, right? So I'll just say belly. It's in your belly. And, and by the way, why is that? You know, um, which church in the New Testament sent missionaries to the world willingly? It wasn't Jerusalem, the first church. It was Antioch, the multi-ethnic church, first multi-ethnic church, which is the first church to take up a collection, not just for themselves, but for the other church at Antioch. Why? When your church is diverse, unified and diverse, again, across the distinction of the world that otherwise divide, mission and mercy is not a program. It's who you are. When you're a church of the other, you don't have to say, ooh, how can we go help all those people? You are those people. You see what I'm saying? That's the beauty. Mission flows from who you are, from your belly as a collective church. And that's what he's saying. You have this now. This mercy is in your belly. So with all of these things being true, Paul says in verse 2, Philippians 2, he says, make my joy complete. You know, he's the one that started the church. Fill me up. That's what the word means. Just fill me up to the brim because uh, it's like icing on the cake. I guess that's how we'd say it in English. Give me the icing on the cake since all this is now true. And he says, how? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and intent on one purpose. Now, again, that doesn't mean in a political, that, that's not what he's talking about. It's this. It's Jesus. It's the bridge of his humanity. Have, be of the same mind, etc. Again, it's the same thing he tells the church of Ephesus in chapter 4. So with that in mind, I want to put the, the verse on the screen for you. Philippians 2, 3. So he's just said, since all these things are true, you got mercy in your belly, etc. Make my joy completed. Put the icing on the cake as a church. Be like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit, and ten, uh, on one mind. And he gives you a little statement of what he's talking about, a little, little further explanation. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, to be very clear, again, in the West, we read this as if the verse is talking to me. Mark the Maz, do nothing from selfishness. Mark the Maz, be humble. Is that true? Of course that's true. Yes, I can learn that from that passage. But is that what Paul had in mind? Was he speaking to the individual? No, he was speaking to the collective uh, diverse church at Philippi, as he was at Ephesus, etc. And he's saying, if I can just say it simply, White people, don't be selfish. Or black people, don't just think about your own. You have to think about the interests of all the people groups here. 
That's really what he's talking about. It's a collective message, right? Do nothing. Individual people groups in this, all the different demographics, don't just think about your own interests, your own needs. You want to think about the interests of other people group because that's how we bring more and more people into the kingdom of God. That's how we do the work of God that's credible and meet people at the bridge of his humanity. And remember, even in the research, the empirical data says Christians don't think like this. So it's a disruptive message. So collectively, individual demographics and people groups, yes, individuals too, but in the context here, we can't build a church like this. We cannot reflect Revelation 7 on 9 on earth as it is in heaven. We cannot be that embassy when people step here, they're in heaven. They experience it. I bet you've had people say that in, the church, in this church before. I guarantee you've had it. Am I right? People say, man, this is what I always thought heaven would be like. They're not talking about lights and sound. They're talking about you. They're talking about us. So we, the different people groups, can't think of our own interests because otherwise this is the how-to. You, if, if you're going to build this kind of embassy on earth, you can't do this. The different people groups, you with me? So he explains this. We have to think about others. And now look, he, he says, that's really specifically what I'm talking about here. And then he goes to verse 5 and following. He says, let me give you an example. Have this attitude in y'all. So again, not you, collective. Have this attitude in you, in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who, as he already existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. And taking the form of a bondservant, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, death to your own interests, death to your own desires for the greater good. Do you understand what he's talking about? Here is the example. So don't think about your own interests. Think about the interests of others. Let me tell you who did that. Let me give you an example of someone who did that. And he talks about Jesus. Have this attitude in you. Now, what is that attitude? He existed in the form of God. Now, I want you to think about this. What does that mean? Jesus, uh, of course, was God. And he existed in the form of God because he was God. So what did he have? Now, when people look at this passage, it goes, it says, as you can see there, but he emptied himself. That word in the Greek, um, it, it, that is like saying in John chapter one, he came down, uh, you know, God to man. And, but let me just say it very simply for sake of time. Throughout centuries, go read what's talking about here. Most people don't even know what he's talking about when it says he emptied himself. Because they'll explain it like, for instance, uh, one way is like, um, we know he didn't stop being God. Here's the point. So sometimes people say, well, he kind of set it aside. In his power, he set aside being God, and he just lived like a man. But that would make him like, you know, what do they call it, uh, duplicitous or whatever. You can't stop being one thing for another. So how, he, he's kind of like, uh, what do they call it, um, I don't know, schizophrenic or whatever, right? So no, that can't be it, right? Another thing is like he's got a God card. So in his pocket, he's got a God card, and he doesn't really want to play it. But every now and then, come on, son, turn the water to one. Oh, mom, come on, I don't want to play that card. Come on, you do what he said. All right, I'll play the card, turn the water. Yeah, he does that, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, Lazarus, man, he's my friend. Okay, here, play the God card, raise the forgive. See, you can't forgive sins, raise people from the dead, unless you're God. So you got to play the God card. So some people explain it like it, and other people just throw up their hand. I mean, I don't know what it's talking about, right? I don't know what it's talking about. Um, but the reason they don't know is because they don't understand churches like this, and more importantly, they don't understand Paul. Because if you understand Paul, unity of the church for the sake of the gospel, and you're trying to build the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven in an embassy, if you will, you know exactly what it means. Here's what it means. Think about it. Jesus was all-powerful, right? He had all power, seated at the right, uh, position, seated at the right hand of God, privilege, throw yourself off the temple, angels will pull up the limousine for you. See what I'm saying? What did Jesus have? Power, position, and privilege. 
And he didn't empty him of self. He leveraged that. And see, he came down, as it says, he came down, took on the form of bondservant so he could leverage power and position and privilege and not hold on to it. That's what I mean to be grasped. I want to keep it to myself. I'm, you know what that's an example of that? Do you ever play that game on the schoolyard, King of the Hill? Remember that? Uh, king of the Hill, little berm on the hill. Everybody scrambles up. You try to be the King of the Hill. How are you able to be the King of the Hill in that little schoolyard game? By what? Pushing others down. You're on top. And the way you're King of the Hill is you keep pushing everyone else down. And that's what it would have been like if Jesus had power, position, privilege and kept it for himself. He would have kept everybody else down. By the way, that's the American way, isn't it? Politics, everything. Keep everyone down so you maintain. Every demographic group in this country right now is fighting either to attain power, position, and privilege they don't have or to maintain the power, position, and privilege they do have. But in this passage, Paul says, to live as Christ and to build the kingdom of God on earth through a church like this, um, it's not about maintaining or attaining power, position, and privilege. You know how you actually get it is let it go. Jesus didn't come to be king of the hill. He came to be king of the world. And if you're going to be king of the world, you're going to have to go down and push people up. And that's what Jesus did. He came down and he pushed us up and he gave us power and position and privilege in the heavenly places, things we didn't have. He came down and pushed us up. And that's the example we are, to leverage whatever measure of power, position, and privilege. By the way, it's a continuum. It's very intersectional. It's not either you have it or not. We all have some measure of power, position, and privilege. Whatever measure you have, whether you have earned it in life or it's otherwise been afforded to you, the calling here for us as individuals in a church, how do we avoid being exclusive members? We go down and we leverage whatever we have to push others up. My dear friend John Perkins taught me years ago, it's not just about giving a man a fish or even teaching people to fish. Ultimately, you want to help others own the pond. And that's Jesus. That's the way of Jesus. It's the way of his followers in a church like this. And that's how you avoid that exclusivity. So when you live like that, final verse, and we'll go on because I'm probably over time. But uh, here's what he says. For this reason then, in other words, because he did this, didn't hold power, position, privilege, came down, pushed us up. See what I'm saying? For this reason, his name is highly exalted. I love that. I mean, it's, his name was already exalted, if you will. You see what I'm saying? But it's like Paul's going, he got a, he's highly exalted. See, in other words, again, this attaining or maintaining power, position, privilege, you want to have impact and influence as a church. Let it go. You see what I'm saying? Leverage it. Let it go. That's actually how you get it, which is the whole upside down world of Jesus Christ. What seems to be is not. So the way you get that as an individual and a church so that you can leverage power, position, privilege to help the other own the pond is you let it go. So, Mosaic, my family, how far can you see? How far can you see for yourself? How far can you see for this church? This is not a moment to shrink back in fear. This is a moment to floor in faith for the glory of God. Father, we pray that the words of my heart and the meditations of my mouth and the word of God that we've considered this morning would be as unto you and for your glory. As we consider a response this morning, as is your habit here in this church, there are several ways you can respond. Of course, there's the cross to my right. You can write post-it notes and thoughts and prayers response to the message there. You can light a candle as a symbol of prayer. Uh, I grew up Jesuit Catholic. That means a lot to me. I understand what that is and what it's not. Uh, of course, you can come forward, come to the cross, see people pray for you. 
But I hope you hear these words this morning are encouraged as an individual, encouraged as a church, and yet also challenged because we have a window of opportunity and to be the embassy of Christ and the ambassadors we want. Meet people at the bridge of the divinity, or humanity, so we can see them cross the bridge of the divinity. Come to a church that reflects those commercials. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Mosaic Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For more audio and video content, visit us at mosaicchurch.tv.